Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed open our eyes, that we might have sight, and open our ears, that we may hear your word spoken to us. Father, as you appointed those great ones of the past to bring forth your gospel, so may we in our day faithfully bring forth your gospel to your people and to those who may not know it yet. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you might know that this week I'm going to be out of town. Um, My father, brother, and some very dear friends of mine are going to be doing a Civil War road trip down through Virginia, up through Maryland, ending in Gettysburg. And um, I was reflecting on that this week. Uh, The last time we did this was 2011, before Leah was even in my life, um, let alone as my wife. Uh, How quickly time goes. Uh, This group also uh, is a group that I used to do living history with, um, also known as Civil War Reenacting. And uh, we fought for the North. Just throw that out there. The winners. And um, uh, I still remember one time we were up at the top of a hill and I was standing next to our commanding officer and the rest of the troops in our group were at the bottom of the hill and of course with the cannons and everything going on uh, you couldn't shout an order and he said I need those men back up here how can I do it and um, I said well sir our men are trained with the bugle let me sound the call And I was the bugler, and so I sounded the call, and the men formed up and came up the hill back to the commanding officer. And boy, was he impressed. Uh, Aside from a nice story, uh, our passage today talks about a bugle being used. Um, It talks about the fact that if the bugle is not sounded, or if the harp is not struck with order and with intention then it just becomes noise. But when it's struck in order and intention, it becomes beautiful music and can indeed be effective, very effective on the field of battle. St. Paul today moves from talking about the church composed in love, with love as its motive and its fuel, or charity, like we talked last week in chapter 14, to this week talking about order and structure. St. Paul is going to deal with the nitty-gritty now. He's gone through the theology, setting up the theology of mutual submission to one another as a church body. And you see this word coming up again and again, edification, right? Edification. The word actually can be translated to build up. I think the ESV uses that. I'm actually preaching out of another translation this morning. But it's the same Greek word. It's to build together, to build up. We get the English word edifice from this Greek root. We get the English word um, build up, words build up from the same word. And everything here done in godly order with love is to build up the church to give God glory, to further the proclaiming of the gospel. So we're going to look at four things today 
as you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to look at number one, the priority of giftings. Talking about speaking in tongues. Talking about prophecy. Number two, we're going to look at structuring the gifts within the service. In verses 26 through 33. Number three, we're going to talk about women in the church. Verses 33b through 35. And finally, we're going to talk about spiritual authority in verses 36 through 40. So if you haven't opened up your Bibles, I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We left off with verse 1, but I'll read it again. Pursue love, says St. Paul. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gift, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, there's that word, and exhortation and consolation. First of all, we've got to define what's going on here. What does Paul mean when he talks about prophecy? Prophecy is from literally the Greek word um, prophetue, prophetute, rather, which means to speak as inspired. Our English comes directly from it. Prophetase is the noun, so prophet in English. To speak as one inspired by God. Well, what's the word for tongue here? It's glossy, glossy, literally meaning language, um, tongue, more precisely, the actual part of the body. Remember we talked about the head, the ca- I think cafe it was a few weeks ago. Um, this is literally talking about the tongue, okay? So what is prophecy in this sense? Well, the traditional word describes people gifted from God with speaking God's saving grace to his people in one way or another. And in the Old Testament, they're often telling the future, but they're also often bringing forth the truth to people, okay? The truth of God's grace, the truth of God's judgment, the truth of the destruction that's going to happen to Israel in the Old Testament, right? You can think of both the major and the minor prophets. In the New Testament, however, things have changed because the word of God has come to us in Christ Jesus, So prophecy, too, changes. Prophecy goes from talking about directly from God the Father, what's going to happen and what is happening currently, to talking about Jesus acting in our life. Do you see the difference? Because the word has come. So it's the word inspiring both. God's inspiring both, but it's different. So in the New Testament era, of course, the Holy Bible was not completely composed yet, right? And so we're dealing here both with prophets speaking about Jesus, as St. Paul is speaking about Jesus in this very letter as Scripture is being written, and we're dealing with prophets speaking on the Word of God as it was written at the time, talking about the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament. So what's a prophet? In our day, a prophet is someone who preaches God's Word, right? 
So, you know, don't be thinking that we're talking about those that are, you know, uh, soothsayers or, or fortune tellers with, with crystal balls that are going to tell you what's going on. That's not what St. Paul's talking about. St. Paul is talking about prophets in the sense of showing forth God's inspired word, showing forth Christ. So preachers are prophets. There's other prophets too, though. There's people that are able to lay bare and expose situations in our life, right? The people that are sometimes given special insight into where we are, okay? And so that prophecy today has that dual meaning. I know I'm digging a lot here, but we've got to unpack this stuff, right? So, so that's what a prophet is. That's what St. Paul's talking about here, okay? Um, what about speaking in tongues, St. Paul writes about that too. Some Christians believe that there's two types of speaking in tongues. Some Christians believe that there is first the miracle of being able to speak in a foreign language, just as happened in Acts chapter 2. And some people believe that there's a spiritual language that's used to praise God. We can't get into all of that today. Um, but the first type is always to proclaim the gospel. The second type is a personal prayer language it's held. Um, Christians that hold that there's two types point to verse 2 here as evidence of a personal prayer language to speak to God and utter the mysteries of the Spirit. The problem with that is the word spirit here is referring to the human spirit, not to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's some very respected scholars that hold that Christians have a personal prayer language. For example, Anglican scholar Leon Morris says uh, that um, this is the case here and makes that argument. There's a problem in my view, and this is my personal view with this, for multiple reasons. I, I think that there's only one type of speaking in tongues, and that is to speak a foreign language. Uh, first of all, word use. There's no difference in the words between the word used here and the word used in Acts chapter 2. There's some modification of the word, but both use the same root, which is glossé, in which we get the English word glossary, right? And what does that mean? To translate or to define a word from the tongue. And the other word that's used is phone, something that's heard, something that's uttered. And both St. Paul here and St. Luke back in Acts chapter 2 use these same words in the same setup. So unless we're going to try to read a distinction in here, somehow theologically, I don't think you can have two types of speaking in tongues. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. So also, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking to the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and to the one who speaks will be a barbarian, who, who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous with spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. 
So what's Paul saying there? Some translations translate that foreigner, right? Barbarian is actually the better translation. Barbarian is a, is a, a I think it's, it's called an adamantopoeia. Is that right? It's a, it's a word that sounds like the thing. So bang is an adamantopoeia, right? Sounds like the actual sound of, of, of that. Um, barbarian comes from the, the, the Greek word barbar, which is how they saw the foreigners as speaking. They sounded bar, 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 bar. And that's where they get the word barbarian from. And so what Paul's saying here is that, that those that speak in tongues without anybody that can understand the tongues are just speaking into the air. There's no point. It doesn't really help anybody. It might help them, but um, unless you have someone to hear, as in Acts chapter 2, how is God glorified? How is the church built up? Do you see? So Paul is very clear here that, once again, it's for the edification of the church that the spiritual gifts are given, not for the flashiness of the giftings given to us. Now, I'm sure some of you have seen, you know, Pentecostals and people on TV, right? And they're doing these dramatic healings and speaking in tongues. And Paul's actually speaking against that here. Let's continue. Why does he talk about so many languages of the world here if he's speaking about a prayer language? Well, that just doesn't make sense. Secondly, why would there need to be an interpreter, as Paul says? That also doesn't make sense. Look with me at verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. What Paul's saying here is that the gift of tongues certainly has its purpose and certainly does happen when you have foreigners present that need to hear the word of God. But it doesn't do any good to show off in that gift. Actually, it hurts the church. It divides the church. It sets people against people. And the Corinthians have made the mistake once again, as they so often do, of building themselves up, puffing themselves up with their spiritual gift. St. Paul even quotes Isaiah referring to this gift for speaking to foreign nations. If you look at verse 21, he's actually quoting when it says, In the law it's written, by men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. He's talking about Isaiah 28, with the word going forth. So, it's better to prophesy than speak in tongues. It's better to preach than be showy with your spiritual gifts. Finally, Chrysostom, writing to the Corinthian, uh, writing uh, back in the uh, third century, writes of this passage that the Corinthians thought that speaking in tongues was a great gift because it was the one that the apostles received first and with great display. The reason the apostles got it first was because it was a sign that they were to go everywhere and preach the gospels. Right? What do the apostles do? It's the day of Pentecost. There's all people from all over the world, and they're given this gift of the Holy Spirit to speak tongues that they don't know so that people might come to Christ 
and you have thousands baptized because of it. In my view, finally, the speaking of tongues as a private prayer language comes from an invention of the Pentecostals at the turn of the last century in 1900 who read that back here into the scripture. Um, and the idea came into the mainstream church in the 1960s. Whether we're talking about personal prayer language or foreign language, though, whether I'm right or wrong on this point, it's not the most important gift, is Paul's point. It's not the most important gift. St. Paul doesn't disparage the gift, but his problem is how they prioritize it, rate it, and use it, like so many things. The Corinthians, for the Corinthians, it's a sign of, sp of superior spiritual maturity, right? That if you're truly a Christian, you'll speak in tongues. But Paul's saying no, actually. That's just puffing yourself up. And that truly, if you're a Christian, you will prophesy. You'll preach the gospel. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and the ungifted men or unbelievers enter, they will, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue. We'll get into that in a minute. So Paul is saying here, prophecy is more important. Speaking God's word faithfully is more important because it shows who Jesus is. This is the fourth telling of the gospel. And it brings repentance. It also brings edification and consolation to the believer. Finally, as one commentator writes, spiritual gifts are incompatible with spiritual selfishness. Spiritual gifts are incompatible with spiritual selfishness. You see, the undergirding thing here is for the building up of the church and the worship of God. There has to be a generosity of spirit towards the church and a praise of God for the gift to be worth anything because without love, it's nothing. The Corinthians, like all humans, have taken a wonderful gift of God and made it about themselves. So Paul is correcting that. Let's go now into the structure of the service St. Paul has now given the Corinthians a theological way of prioritizing their thoughts, their words, and their deeds, and using their gifts in worship. As I've said, it's for the glory of God, it's being done with the love of the church, and it's for the building up, here's that word edification, the oikomain, which literally means the house, the building of the edifice, the house in the church. So now he turns to the real practical. Verse 23. I'm sorry. Verse 26. Let all things, the end of the verse, let all things be done for edification. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, 
it should be by two and the most, at most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. If there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who's seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What Paul's doing here is laying out a basic liturgy. Do you see it? He's saying, here's an order of service. Why? Because God is a God of order. Right? So what's going on here? Well, Paul says that if there's going to be a meeting, an assembly, then a psalm is read, a reading is read, can be also translated, a song is sung, a teaching is given. The actual word here is didache, a revealing, a teaching. A revelation, apocalypse, which is a laying bare, an exposition. It literally means to be made naked, right? And he's not talking about them running around naked. That's the Quakers later on. Um, they actually did that. Um, but uh, he's talking about the word of God being laid bare, right? There's a tongue of interpretation, if there's a speaking in tongues, that tongues are to be for the edification of the body, as he's already talked about. And there's prophecy, two or three, and they're to go one at a time. Why? Well, you ever enter a room and you have a bunch of people speaking even the same language, and you're trying to listen to the speaker up at the front? Can you hear him? No. Paul is saying good order is necessary in worship. It's not about your exuberance. It's about God's glory. What's clear here is that St. Paul is structuring their worship, and the Holy Spirit doesn't possess people out of their minds. Right? That's another thing you run into. Some people think, well, true dynamic worship is when I'm not being thoughtful, when I'm letting go, when I'm somehow in ecstasy, right? You run into this in various Christian traditions, um, but certainly even the evangelical tradition, it's this hyping up, this idea that, that, that you know, if, if, if I just feel it, then God's present. No, that's not scriptural. That's not scriptural. Now, is it wrong to get excited? Is it wrong to engage your emotions? No, it's not wrong as long as that's what not, is not what's driving your worship, right? Paul's giving them a method here. Look at verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Finally, we move to the next point. What's the place of women in the church? Now, we don't know what's going on in the Corinthian church here. Paul's responding to all sorts of things. There's all sorts of thoughts about what Paul's correcting here in the Corinthian church. But the bottom line is we don't know what. Let's read it together. Verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves just as the law also says, or they're subject rather themselves, 
just as the law also says. Verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, I just have to say, first of all, this is one of those verses that's been used as a battering ram against women historically and has caused a great deal of hurt. Um, it's really unfortunate when God's word becomes weaponized. Okay? Paul is not saying, sit down and shut up, women, as some would tell you. That's not what's going on here. We have to ask, well, what is Paul saying? Number one, let's nail down exactly what he has said. Number one, we're talking about public worship. Number two, we're talking about order and edification. Number three, Paul's correcting the Corinthians again. Um, so if we look at this in that context, what Paul is not saying is that women can't speak in church. Now, is that the plain verbiage here? Yes. But as Anglicans, we believe you cannot set one piece of scripture against another piece of scripture. And even in this book itself, back in chapter 11, Paul says that women are to pray and prophesy in the assembly. Well, let's follow the logic. If prophesy means to preach, women are allowed to pray and preach in the assembly. Do you see? So what is Paul saying here? Why does he seem to be contradicting himself? Well, He's not contradicting himself. He's speaking specifically here into a situation. Just like in chapter 11, this passage is particularly difficult to discuss in our culture because of the sensitivities, but I want to invite you to let the scripture be opened up and speak to you as to what's actually being said. Discuss these things. I know we get emotional about this stuff, but discuss these things. Be shaped by them. What's Paul saying, as a matter of fact, is he's giving rules of order, right? So while some have misused this passage, what is he saying is that is what he's saying is that this prohibition is not a prohibition of women praying or preaching in the church, but it's specifically talking about prophesying with a bunch of other prophets prophesying. Look immediately at what precedes it. Paul's giving words of order about the prophets being subject to the prophets. Okay? Look at what immediately follows. This is verse um, 36. Or was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? What's he saying? That we as individuals have to subject ourselves to the church to be submitted to the church, to one another. What was going on here? Well, again, we don't know particularly, but apparently married women were disgracing their husbands. We do know that much. Disgracing the church. Look at verse, um, where is it now? Thank you. 
that women are to keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper, that word improper is actually a word disgrace, for a woman to speak in church. It's a disgrace for a woman. To, well, so what's going on? Well, in Paul's day here in the, in the Corinthian church, women weren't educated. So this is one option. So women weren't educated, and it might have merely been that they were slowing down the preaching, right? Because they're asking silly questions, all right? You've heard it said in class, there's no such thing as a dumb question. It's true. But it can also be said that there are proper places to ask questions and proper places to keep your mouth shut and clarify later, right? Is that what's going on here because of a lack of education? That they don't know what's going on, so Paul's saying to ask their husbands at home? Maybe. Another, op- another option is that like in chapter 11, women are going overboard in the church with their newfound equal status. And so they've recently been liberated from this idea of secular subjugation. Remember, in this culture, you were only allowed to speak to your family if you were a woman. You couldn't speak to someone outside of your family, right? That was a disgrace. So is that what's going on here? Have they just gotten over-exuberant and they can speak here in the, in the community and now they're just speaking all over the place because, hey, this is great. Just like the head covering, maybe, maybe. Um, there's another option. Perhaps their questioning is scandalizing other believers in the church. Maybe there's those in the church that, that don't quite understand the newfound place of women in the church and that it's distracting them. Well, that reverts back to Paul's previous point that that it's not about our own personal rights in the church. It's about the good of the church. You see, all these are options for what's going on here. But St. Paul ultimately is reminding them that this passage, in this passage, that they're to be mindful of the communities they're in. Their husbands, their families, the larger church. Um, And actually, more importantly perhaps that we miss because of our 21st century glasses is the fact that Paul is telling husbands to instruct their wives. Now, that sounds like misogynistic, right? From our our lens. But, But what is Paul doing here in a first century context where women aren't educated at all? Paul's saying, ask your husband with the, expectation, with, the, with the expectation, husbands, explain this to your wives so that they can be equal members of the body. You see, this is far from the beating down of the female sex. That's not what Paul's saying. And it's a great disservice when this passage is misused. Now, we can talk about the nitty-gritties of what this means, right? Of of where where women should and should not serve in the church, how they should preach, whether they can be ordained priests or deacons. We can talk about all that. But we can't base that off of this passage. This passage is not talking about that. In conclusion, it's in humility that we use our gifts and serve. People in the church are thinking too highly of themselves and too lowly of others. 
And too often leadership and ministry success breeds arrogance instead of discipleship. How often have we seen that where people get puffed up because they're the priest or they're the chairman of the altar guild or, or, or the senior warden? Those, those areas are great have great responsibilities not to lord it over people, but to build other people up to say, hey, come, learn this, be part of this. People aspire to the visible ministries rather than the vital invisible ones. And what is the speaking in tongues talking about? Well, I think in the Corinthian church, it's become too elevated. So Paul's correcting it. In modern America, where does this rear its head? I think in consumeristic worship. In the idea that we go to church to get an experience. Gordon Fee says, the point of everything in corporate worship is not personal experience in the spirit but the building up of the church itself. And finally, there's an issue of order and authority, whether single or married, man or woman, in what ways can we grow in the proper ordering of our lives with one another and in our worship with the aim of glorifying God and proclaiming him to others? How can we better build up the church, friends, with our gifts? How can we not be that bugle, just blowing random notes, tooting our own horn? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us see that, to be subject to one another, to love one another, to console one another, to build each other up for the sake of the gospel and the glorification of God. Amen.